Hi, I'm Max Moynian, and welcome to Better World. And I'm Henry Lin. Better World is an exploration of badass people doing really cool things. The more we know about this world, the better we can do in changing it. How do we slow down? I think well, I think the first thing we can all do is stop treating clothing like it's disposable. I think that's um. To me, the first and firm, foremost thing we all need to do is treat clothing like a durable product because it's meant to be a little bit more durable than we've started to treat it. Max, I'm a little nervous today. I'm not going to lie. I know. Claire's a big deal. She's a huge deal, Max. Huge. Um, we've talked a lot about sustainable fashion um, to the point that I think that you are almost bored with it, but still incredibly excited about it because um, you're the most fashionable person I know. Never bored. Always exciting. Always down to see people doing some real stuff. You know, I'm bored of the greenwashing in, 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 uh, in fashion. So I'm excited to be tackling that today with our special guest. A thousand percent. We also get to talk about the first time that I went into uh, Stella McCartney's office carrying a chicken shawarma. That was awkward. Henry. Yeah. See, you would know. Of course you would know. Oh, I didn't know. Also, it was 2008. Who knew at the time? You get a pass. Everyone gets a pass. We're all in this together. Stella McCartney's office is vegan. Um, the lovely uh, gentleman at the front desk informed me so. I was fresh off flight and starving. He was like, maybe eat that outside. Noted. Who is our guest today, Max? Our guest today is Claire Burkamp. She is the Chief Operating Officer at Textile Exchange. Previous to joining Textile Exchange, she held the position of Worldwide Sustainability and Innovation Director for over eight years at Stella McCartney, leading the global environmental, human rights, and innovation strategy for the brand. During her time at the brand, she built a qualified, high-functioning sustainability department and team and a purposeful strategy and ambitious project portfolio. Textile exchange inspires and equips people to accelerate adoption of preferred materials in the textile value chain. They focus on carbon reduction, soil health, water, and biodiversity as part of their holistic approach to drive positive impact for the entire industry. Claire, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. It's my honor to be here. Sick. Love and honor. Oh, too kind, too kind. Tell us a little bit about you and about Textile Change, please. Um, so I am still relatively new at Textile Exchange. Um, I joined in November, and as you said, um, I came over from Stella McCartney, uh, where I was for almost nine years. And so I am so far loving Textile Exchange, I have to say. It's my first time working in a nonprofit, um, but it's a pretty incredible organization that was co-founded by the CEO, Larry Pepper, um, and started out actually as an organization working on organic cotton and evolved into um, textile exchange. So Organic cotton, because organic cotton um, is such a water sucker, um, uh, but um, an incredibly important and actually good for uh, the world material? Like what was, why the choice of organic cotton? Well, organic cotton uh, started out as organic exchange and the, the organic cotton via water sucker is a little bit of a myth, I have to say. Um, all, cotton, oh, sick. <laughs> all cotton can be pretty thirsty. 
Um, but the healthier the soil, often the less water you need. And organic cotton um, does help rebuild soil health um, and maintain soil health uh, using uh, natural you know, inputs instead of synthetic ones. So uh, the being more thirsty than conventional cotton is not, not really true. <laughs> um, but it is certainly something that I hear a lot. And uh, cotton you know, can take various amounts of water depending on where it's grown and depending on um, you know, rainfall in the area and soil health and many other factors. So it's not, um, certainly not fair to call organic out that way. So sorry, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that is why it was started that way. I was not calling organic out, but cotton out and am really happy um, uh, that we are advocating cotton um, because when grown properly, as you noted, uh, it happens to be not only tremendous for soil health, but uh, as the alternative of all of the other choices that you mentioned, it's pretty much still uh, one of the best materials. Um, I noted also that you guys uh, have uh, relationships with leading brand, uh, leading brands, excuse me, retailers and suppliers. And so I assume that uh, cotton is one of the number one preferred fibers that uh, you guys support or uh, endorse. That is absolutely correct. Um, and the we we do look at preferred fibers in all materials and fibers, but um, cotton is is where our roots are. And I guess to even to answer your question from before, the reason we started with cotton is our co-founder is a fifth generation cotton farmer, um, and so the organization started out of Texas. And um, Lorraine, who's the co-founder. Um, was a cotton farmer herself and comes from a family, a family and history of, of working in that space. And um, over the years, the organization evolved to look at more materials, but cotton still a cornerstone material for us. And looking at how we can transform any supply chain, but you know, cotton being a big one, um, away from something that is damaging and towards something that can be more beneficial to the planet. You mentioned that cotton, uh, when grown improperly, um, is uh, detrimental. Um, uh, to the to the soil um, and based on um, other factors like rainfall. Um, can you go a little bit deeper into the practices that uh, you guys uh, espouse and uh, and endorse? Absolutely. So um, we are we're in a in a well we, we support many practices, but just to kind of to give a little bit of framing, I guess um, our overall strategy is something that we call Climate Plus, um, and we call it that because it is um, focused around greenhouse gas reduction at tier four in, in material supply chains in raw materials, um, but looking at biodiversity, soil, and water as well. Can you explain t tier four? Yes, sorry, it's such a bad habit, and I get I do it all the time. <laughs> That's what we're here for. We're, we're the people that know nothing. What's a tier four? What's a tier four? The uh, in, in industry jargon, in sustainability supply chain jargon, we talk about our supply chains in tiers. Um, and if we start with tier zero, tier zero is if you're a brand, it's your own operations, it's where you're selling products, your warehouses everything else. It's uh, typically the part that, you know, a brand really owns and controls. And then we've got four tiers going back from there. Um, tier one is manufacturing production. So really cut and sew. 
Tier two would be weaving and dyeing. Tier three would be raw material transformation. And tier four is raw material production. Um, and so for us at Textile Exchange, we're really focused on that materials piece, that tier four, how materials are coming into being um, and how we can improve those systems and methods of cultivating um, or creating materials. And so um, we're very focused around how we can help enable um, a 45% reduction um, in greenhouse gases by 2030 in line with the, you know, the, the climate goals that we're all aiming for. Um, and so in, in any of the cases, in any of the materials, we're looking at where those major levers are um, and what needs to be happening to do to restore soil health, um, to really look at anything um, that can help change and shift systems to be um, less negative in every way, but especially looking at greenhouse gas. I love um, cotton myth busting. I, I know we just jumped right into there. Can we do a little bit more cotton myth busting? Like, and even just some facts. I know I heard once that cotton production globally is a very small percentage of actual land cover, but a large percentage of pesticide use, for example. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think it's, um, I actually don't have the stats in front of me, but I think it's like, I think it's like cotton is 2.5% and we have, we'll have to check this, but I think it's 2.5% of all agricultural land, but I think it uses something like 10% of all the insecticides and pesticides. It is something like that. It might even be higher, um, but the ratio is way off. Yes. <laughs> Considering amount of land and pesticide use. Um, and so, yeah, the, the kind of synthetic inputs is one of the big, in, you know, environmental problems, I would say. Um, and especially also not only pesticides, but synthetic fertilizers. Um, and, you know, one of the major levers from a climate point of view is switching from synthetic fertilizers to compost, uh, which sounds, you know, really simple, all things considered, but makes a huge difference when it comes to um, greenhouse gas release. I love the connection from like, farming to product. I mean, it just, it sounds super simple and it just, I don't think that too many people make that connection from soil to their t-shirt, you know? I think that's true. I think, you know, I think it's, um, there's a real disconnect between what we're wearing and kind of where it comes from. And I mean, I guess to anyone's defense, it's a lot of steps. I mean, think about, I mean, we talked about tiers, but within each one of those tiers, there's a lot of <laughs> little mini tiers and different factories and, you know, lots and lots of people make up a, a supply chain. And so that transformation, you know, can be pretty radical um, or a little easier to understand. I think, you know, we can, you know, something like cotton or wool, you know, maybe we can kind of see where it started, but there's other materials that get so transformed um, that it's hard to imagine their origin. Definitely. I definitely don't blame people for not understanding the full supply chain of their t-shirt. I mean, it's a crazy thought. I hope one day that's like fully listed on the, if it was fully listed on a product tag, it probably would be a tag like 10 feet long. So maybe it's like a QR code. <laughs> Oh, she's, she's innovating people. She wants the AR code scanner. You like roll over the tag and it like takes you through a visual representation of the entire supply yeah, chain. Yeah, like some blockchain shit. Possibly with the guy whose voice from like, uh, like the movies, you know, that guy like in a world, this is your supply chain. You know, whatever gets people to care. I'm here for it. I would be really excited about like my little supply chain video, but you and I are kind of nerds. Yeah. I think Claire's a nerd too. Claire, what are you like nerding out on the most right now with textile exchange? I mean, I think I am actually nerding out the most on soil, if I'm honest. Um, I, yes. I think that's the deal. <laughs> it's 
one of our favorite topics. We've done a soil series. Yes. We've had soil events. We're kind of into soil. I travel around jungles looking at soil and sustainable agriculture. It's it's a side project. Max won't travel with me. <laughs> it's COVID. What jungle? What are you doing in the jungles looking at soil? Well, one of the things that um, we believe deeply um, uh, between myself. Um, Barnett and on occasion, um, uh, Max, depending on um, what day you call her, uh, is that ultimately um, uh, agroforestry and sustainable agriculture and permaculture um, uh, will do a large portion of world saving um, if it's gotten out there. So one of the best places to um, save some good trees um, uh, and, uh, and grow some great foods uh, Latin America and, uh, Central America and South America. Um, so, uh, we originally at Better World were actually looking at, uh, agroforestry products and whether or not we could partner with local agroforestry providers, um, and, uh, bring them to the mainstream and sell them D to C. So that is the first time a guest has ever asked me a question about my passion of agroforestry. So I am safe to say that I love you, Claire. Thank you. Well, I love what you just said, so I think, I think it's all pretty great. I think uh, I agree with you and think, I mean, it's, you know, there's there are these little pockets where there's, you know, there's, I mean, listen, the topics around uh, climate change, around the devastation that we're doing are very heavy. And I think, you know, keeping, keeping um, that positivity and optimism and spotlight on where there's opportunities to really shift things is it's gotta be our focus and, you know, putting our energy into those systems and scaling them is, you know, that's what we're all about at textile exchange is how do we, how do we do that? How do we, you know, point people in the right direction and get energy flowing towards the system change that can make this less scary and make it feel uh something we can actually tackle together. I love, I love getting overwhelmed by the solutions and not the problems. Can you like tell me, I'm just bringing it down to the practical level. Like how do you get a brand excited about soil health? How do you talk to a brand about soil health? Is that what you're doing? <laughs> you know, I think it's not as fringe as it used to be. First of all, I will say, I think that, um, you know, I think, you know, the, the kind of the next buzzword that I've been hearing, you know, that we, when we have to be careful with buzzwords, because as soon as they become buzzy, they can start to lose their meaning. But mm -hmm. there is a lot of energy around regenerative, which, you know, can mean a lot of things or nothing. But I do think that um, so much regenerative talk. It's yeah, wild. It is. And it's good because when it's done in a way that is science-based um, and, you know, given time to work, there is a lot of potential. It's still new enough that we don't know what the potential is exactly. But I think that um, I think that there's enough out there now and enough research and kind of pointing in the direction of no matter what, no matter how you cut it, part of how we address this is improving soil health globally. And that uh, the, the regeneration and restoration and repair of our soil is going to be critical for human survival. Um, it's truly the foundation of all civilization and we need soil for everything. So um, I, I think that, you know, there's, there, are, there is actually, um, I would say, a surprising amount of awareness in companies um, around the need to look at this and the need to understand um, how to shift things. And I think that it's, it's kind of an intoxicating proposition, you know, as a company to be able to finally do something that could be positive. Um, and I think, you know, again, we have to be careful about the buzziness of it, but 
that you could as a business support something that would go beyond, you know, just simply uh, doing a little bit less harm, you know, just reducing a little bit of water usage, which is very important and should not be discounted, but towards actually building back something is exciting. And so um, I think there's some interesting movement and focus in that area. And I, I hope that we can capitalize on it and make sure that it stays science-based and meaningful and doesn't turn into something that is just buzzy. I love that. I'm curious to know from you, since we're focusing on manufacturing, um, how much of the solution do you think needs to be like fixing the way that we manufacture versus just simply manufacturing less and recycling and upcycling more? I think it's I think it's hand in hand. There's no way that we fix this if we continue to grow at the rate we're growing. I mean, there's just it's there's there's no way <laughs> we have to slow down. Um, all of the modeling that we've done in our in our climate plus work, you know, does include a need to slow growth. How do we slow down? Slow growth. I love that. How do we slow down? I think well, I think the first thing we can all do is stop treating clothing like it's disposable. I think that's um. To me, the first and firm, foremost thing we all need to do is treat clothing like a durable product because it's meant to be a little bit more durable than we've started to treat it. Um, and that's not to say everything needs to cost a fortune, but I do think that you know the, the, the model that exists in some places where you buy something and wear it once and toss it or buy something, leave the tags on and never wear it <laughs> because it was something that you bought to scratch an itch or whatever the reason might be, I think that does need to change. I think we need to start treating clothing um, a little bit more preciously and having it for longer and being a little bit more conscious about why we bought what we've bought. And I think that could be anything. I don't think that has to mean you're spending a lot of money on something. I think it can mean anything as long as it's meaningful to you. Um, and so to me, that's got to be part of this is just rewiring our brain towards how we interact with fashion, how we interact with clothing in general. But I don't know how to do it exactly, Henry, to answer your question. <laughs> I know that we need to do it. Um, and I hope, I think communication is going to be part of it, but it's, it's a big one. It's um, it, possibly one of the largest uh, consumer challenges that we have. And there's what, um, a corporate restructuring that has to occur. There's an incentivization restructuring. Um, if you ask Max, um, she would say that we just have to tear down capitalism and the patriarchy in one fell swoop. Um, <laughs> uh, love the patriarchy joke in the middle of a Wednesday. Um, uh, oh, goodness. I'm not really sure um, uh, we have the answer, but um, to be honest, one of the reasons that we started this and one of the reasons that we lay into sustainable fashion so much on Better World um, is because we believe the consumer has the power and the more education that we give to the consumer for literally just buy less, mend more, um, the, uh, the better this all gets. I don't know if government regulation has to step in um, at some point uh, and regulate how much is actually manufactured and produced. I, I don't know if that would even work. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a huge I don't know, but the things that I do know um, are that what you just said is really powerful and I want to highlight it. Changing your relationship with clothing is something that we uh, have discussed on a number of different episodes. I mean, <laughs> we, ha we had one where there was living clothing and uh, you had to take care of it by garmentry. It's an intention that we should all take on to some extent. I am going to treat my clothing and my wardrobe differently. Um, the act of being sustainable is also going to be in some capacity in not everything that I do, because I, I don't advocate 
the 100% extremity. Um, I advocate doing everything that you possibly can and that being enough. But uh, hey, let's let's not buy stuff that we know is going to fall apart. Sure, I'm, I'm game. Um, I have a feeling that um, Max has maybe six or seven more questions, but, um, uh, I love the, uh, I love the manufacturing route that we're going down and, um, uh, the, the supply chain, uh, auditing route that we're going down. And of course I would love to hear more about it, but I defer to Max because she's my queen. Well, thank you so much. I was actually on the same tip. So I was just curious to know more about like what are the biggest hotspots in the supply chain? What do, what do brands even come to you thinking that they are and what are they actually, does it depend on material, that kind of question? Well, the, um, the whole supply chain is not our gambit. So I want to be, I want to be fair about that. I mean, I'm, I've been very involved um, with the, there's a climate charter that the UN started a few years back for fashion. And I've been on the steering committee of that. Um, and I, I lead one of the working groups, um, I co-lead a working group on raw materials within it. And so um, there are a lot of hot spots throughout the whole supply chain, you know, coal being a big one, <laughs> um, but that's certainly not our area of expertise at textile exchange. But I, I do think decarbonization along the supply chain, um, you know, chemicals, human rights, there's, there's a gambit and a lot of, there are a lot of hot spots is what I would say. Um, when it comes to our, our area, textile exchange, you know, there are hot spots within each material, I would say. Um, and there's, there's preferred options within each material. Um, we have, uh, you know, a big focus on education, on convening the industry together, and we're looking for opportunities to accelerate positive change around around things like how do we uh, build back soil health so that uh, rain fed can work no matter how much rain you have. We, we run these um, things that we call round tables, which are uh, big convening uh, moments on different material topics. And I was on uh, one of our roundtable calls, because uh, everything's a call now, of course, everything's virtual, um, in December, uh, where it was on sustainable cotton. And it was, um, you know, farmers and brands and suppliers all on the call together and a little breakout. And it was incredible to hear some of what was happening on the ground in Texas, honestly. So there was um, a farmer that was talking about how they had um, switched over towards uh, compost and building back and focusing on um, soil health and that they were able to maintain their crops on completely rain fed with only five inches of rain a year. Um, and I was shocked <laughs> and amazed. Um, and that's what we're working on. We're working on how do we bring those people in the room? How do we um, learn from each other? How do we leverage success? And how do we measure it and uh, provide a North Star also? Um, we do a lot of, uh, a lot of one of our major programs is around benchmarking the industry. So um, we ask companies to report in and, you know, say how they're doing on adopting better materials. Um, and we benchmark the industry um, against itself to provide, again, you know, that kind of market insight into this is the direction of travel. We need to move quicker. You know, here's uh, where we are with organic cotton. Here's what's happening with recycled polyester. 
Um, and we also set challenges back out to kind of, again, help point people towards where things need to shift. I mean, it's not, it's of course, you know, if, if you're in the, if you're in the weeds on this, none of it's probably rocket science, but, um, you know, if, if we're going to use polyester, it does need to be recycled polyester. We need to, um, you know, shift the way that we grow cotton. We need to be so, um, sourcing for more sustainable options and organic systems. And, um, that's a, that's a lot. I've probably just rambled a bit, but <laughs> all of those different things are how we're trying to educate and enable and give voice to solutions. I'm Henry Lynn, and this episode is brought to you by Everybody and Everyone, a fashion line brought to us by Veronica Chow. Check them out on episode 60 of the Better World podcast and check them out online. They have done with material science what needed to be done for our sustainable future in luxury fashion. Give it a look. And thanks for listening to Better World. Well, you're clearly a systems thinker, and it's always a lot because there's always 5 million things to be thinking about. And if we're not thinking about all of the things all at the same time, even though we can you know, really specialize in a few of them, then we might have really good intentions that are not really doing great things. So I, I can appreciate that a lot. Uh, I'm curious to know when you have these roundtables and you have, I'm thinking about the farmer and the person from the brand and the person from the factory, we can't expect every single one of these people to want to be saving the world through their job. So what kind of incentives are offered, if any? Well, not enough is what I would say. I mean, one of the, the number one barrier that we hear back is price still, you know? So um, the, the number one barrier we hear from companies to being, you know, 100% sustainable in their material usage is the cost um, of, of doing that. And one of the, you know, the kind of elephants in the room, and we started talking about it, you know, a little bit before is that we actually, we need to tackle that. It does actually cost more to do things sustainably. It it is not going to cost the same amount to do something in a way that, you know, if you're using, um, you know, a mutant seed <laughs> that can grow very quickly and dousing it in pesticides, you might get a great yield out of that that's gonna cost less, but what does it cost the planet? And um, what is the cost of continuing to do that in the long run? And so price versus value um, is something that we're trying to bring into the conversation more because it does actually cost more to do things in a way that's in balance with nature um, and not uh, just kind of taking the planet for everything that it can give without looking at the next generation or even the next season. So we are talking about that a lot. And I think on the incentive side, I do kind of I point to government a little bit here, honestly. I think that we do need to be incentivizing these practices. Um, if you'll indulge me, I'll give you all going a little bit of a tangent, but <laughs> my, my first career, uh, pre all of this, my first degree and my first career, I was a costume. I had a degree in costume design. Um, I lived and worked in Los Angeles for around four years, um, in the film world. And when I was there, it was when um, tax incentives were really coming onto the market. Um, and during the writer's strike as well, <laughs> but, um, there, you know, the industry shifted very quickly, the film industry from being pretty based in California and a little bit in Canada to being, um, you know, in Atlanta, in Louisiana, in places where there were tax incentives. It disrupted that industry almost overnight um, where, where films were made changed because there was an incentive to make it in a different place. If you provided that same incentive towards sourcing organic cotton, sourcing recycled polyester, 
sourcing certified, verified, you know, more sustainable materials, the market would shift. You know, money does follow where it needs to. And so if there were market incentives and tax breaks, I think we would see a pretty immediate uptick in sustainable sourcing. Um, and so I, I do kind of think that it, to some point, um, because we are in a capitalist system and if the government does want to take care of us, there should be some incentives towards better practice. Yeah, I can appreciate that too as being the solution here because when we're talking about all of this um, on a human rights level, there's one side of it that's like the better practices are better for the people on the front lines, you know, the people picking the cotton and living in those areas and in factories. But the other side of the human rights issue is that if we're making everything more, more expensive, then that's a problem. So it does sound like it should be the government's responsibility, whether they care about the planet or not, um, just from the human rights perspective. Yeah, I, I, I agree. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how we make it happen, but uh, I think that, you know, there needs to be a little bit more pressure on um, leveling the playing field and protecting things that need being protected. And how do we do that when we live in such a global world where your cotton might be grown on one continent and, you know, tier one happens in another continent and it's just traveling all over the world before it even makes it to your, to your, in your t-shirt, in your store? That's a hard question. <laughs> well, I think, do you mean specifically how do we, I, well, I think an incentive on, from a, from a starting point, I do think providing an incentive on, um, you know, verified sustainable materials is a good place to start. Um, so again, you know, one of the things we, we started talking about quite a few years back at Textile Exchange was, you know, what if there was a preferential tariff uh, tax for organic cotton? I mean, that's something that would change the way a company sourced, but would also have a ripple effect through the whole supply chain, um, you know, because there would be a more of a need for organic cotton and organic cotton uh, is more valuable. You know, it's sold at a, sold at a premium. It's grown in a way that's more in balance. It's not a monocrop. You know, there's um, also food being grown on a farm typically. It just starts to change the world actually quite drastically just by simply incentivizing the use of a something like organic cotton. Um, so I think that there are, there are levers that can be pulled that would have positive ripple effects. I mean, there's always going to be problems everywhere. But I think that, you know, starting with a few things that we know work um, and looking for how we could incentivize those to me would be a good place to start. I think that's such a great attitude. And I thought it was so great in your interview with Whitney Bach um, from Fashionista that you said that there's no we can't be focused on getting perfect data um, and that we need to just start getting to work with what we have. And I wanted to hear a little bit more from you on that, on um, at what point, because this is such an overwhelming topic, are you guys trying to figure out like exactly what the problem is versus having enough information to get started on something or how even gathering data when you're dealing with things that probably aren't formatted in the same way, um, how, how that works. Oh boy, the data topic. It's a the data topic. <laughs> Big data, let's go. So the data on materials globally isn't great. We could start there. So we know that we don't have um, consolidated global insight into impact um, of, anything, of anything, but let's just say of materials either. You know, we don't, we don't know exactly what impacts look like. Is that a function of the worst perpetrators just 
not having their shit together? Um, uh, or is it also a function of um, even some of like the best just not um, keeping data? It's everything. It's also just not um, data. The collection of data at a granular level is a huge ask and it's not incentivized either. Uh, and so it's so many different reasons. It's that data sets don't get updated because people don't pay for it. You know, data sets are 10 years old in some cases. Um, and, you know, maybe that's okay. Maybe things haven't changed. Maybe things have changed, but we don't know what we don't know. Um, but all of that being said is that no matter how we look at it, we do know where we know where problems are, you know? And so I, I think it's a two-pronged approach. I think, first of all, we need to think about how we can um, get better data in so that we know that we're doing some of the right things. And that's that kind of wanting to make sure that we're following science and measuring what we need to measure and keeping an eye on changes as they happen, you know, so that we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket um, and that we're tracking progress and we know, you know, what changes are happening with soil health, with crop yield, um, with the amount of water required, you know, those kind of tangible things that we need to look at. So I think there's that part of it. Um, but even as we look at how we can improve our data, we do know where some of the biggest um, problems are. So I keep on coming back to synthetic fertilizers because synthetic fertilizers are one of the main drivers um, when, it, when you look at it from a climate point of view with crops, um, you know, and so we, we know we need to look at that. We know that deforestation, no matter, you know, what, what industry you're talking to is a problem. And so if we are in anything in fashion tupping, touching up against deforestation, we need to be taking that extremely seriously and looking at how we can shift away from it. So it is, to me, it's a combination of looking at how we improve data so that um, claims that are made out in the world can be verified because, you know, there is a need, uh, a perceived need at least, or a desire for brands to be able to claim, you know, what they're doing and what the impact is and how it's better. And to be able to do that in a way that's legitimate, we do need to improve our data, um, at least somewhat, <laughs> but it shouldn't stop us from at the same time addressing the things that we know need addressing. Like no one's quibbling about the fact that we have to stop deforestation. You know, everyone knows that we need to be looking at soil health and how animals graze and making sure that our grasslands don't turn into deserts, you know, from overgrazing. Like there are major buckets of activity that exist in fashion supply chains because they are agricultural systems, they're forestry systems, they're recycling systems that we know about and can start working on now while we look at how we um, track and improve and connect data sources. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when you see a headline that says major study finds that Facebook use makes people feel more lonely. And yeah. you're just like, no, duh. But I'm glad you got, you know, I'm, I hope you didn't spend way too much money on the study. But if you needed that data to like turn it into legislation or like make parents care more then I guess, but it's kind of obvious at the same time. I, I would agree. Okay. I agree. <laughs> Those ones always get me. Um, I have a question thinking about an article that totally changed my life that you might be familiar with by Elizabeth Klein called The Twilight of the Ethical Consumer. Um, I'm sure that our listeners on the consumer side are probably getting overwhelmed about like how do they make sure they're buying stuff that's sourced sustainably in organic cotton and all that kind of stuff. How are they going to afford it? 
So that's all important. And we, and we think ethical consumerism is very important, but, um, how can, how can the consumer listener right now be a better consumer activist to you? I think it does start with being, uh, being aware that what you're buying is something you actually want to keep and use. So I think, you know, going back to what we touched on before, like it's such an important thing when you buy something that you're going to actually, it's something you want and need and will use, you know, not just to buy it, to buy it. Um, I think that's the first step. I also think, you know, it is, can be confusing and stressful, you know, knowing what to buy if you are wanting to shop um, new products and do it in a way that is more ethical, but I think looking for certified materials is a good start. And I think that there are more, there's more and more of it. I have to say, like, I think the market has really shifted in the past couple of years, actually, I would say even like two years where you see more and more of it available um, at, you know, maybe not really low prices, but lower, more mid market pricing, um, which is heartening, I, I think. Um, and I also think, you know, it's about thinking about what company you're supporting more holistically you know, there's a saying that every time you vote, every time you buy something, you're voting for it. And I've, I've always really taken that to heart, you know, like by purchasing something, you're voting for that company to exist. You know, you've chosen to give them money. And by doing that, you're saying, I want you to exist on this planet. And so I think, you know, just taking that to heart, <laughs> thinking like, is this a company that I really want to be here? Like, is this someone I want to have my money? And then I think, you know, going to do something that's, you know, not completely terrible with my money um, is, is kind of one lens to look at it through. And then, you know, the, the, you know, the, the buying secondhand, I think, is really a very different proposition than it was, again, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago. There's so many great um, resale marketplaces now available online that I think it's a it can be a, a great way to shop personally. And, um, it also, it kind of allows that style aspect, I think, to come back in. I think that the, you know, the kind of rise of faster fashion made everything look the same, <laughs> you know, because all of a sudden you could buy the same thing anywhere on the planet. And I think the, the secondhand market from both an environmental point of view, but also just maybe like a personal expression point of view provides a, a really different alternative to that where you're not always going to be finding something unique and vintage, but at least it's not the exact same thing you might be able to buy in any corner, you know, in any major city. And I think that there's a lot there um, and a lot of excitement and it's a little different in the pandemic, but like my, my other tip always was like, listen, like rental also exists now. And like, especially as a woman, like, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I, I was a couple years back, especially I was going to a lot of weddings, like a lot of weddings, you know, and I was buying a lot of dresses that I was wearing maybe once or twice, you know, for a specific venue at a specific moment. And I looked back and was like, I should have rented every single one of these dresses. This was like a ridiculous thing. And rental wasn't as available um, then as it is now, but like, Rent stuff if you're going to wear it once, you know, like if you've got this episode of Better Worlds has been brought to you by Rent the Runway. <laughs> but it's real, man. Like, don't own it if you're going to wear it once. <laughs> well, I actually come from a small community of, of Persian Jews in New York. And one time when we had like 50 of us women in the same room, I actually stopped the conversation and said, ladies, can we just normalize rewearing dresses? Because I'm just so sick of spending so much money on dresses and everybody, everybody was like hands in. We're rewearing dresses. We're clothes swapping. No more buying new dresses. 
And just to see that everyone's on the same, that anxiety of like having to wear the new thing all the time, we could all agree that it sucks. So we should all be more like French women. It does. <laughs> yes, I agree. I so am with you. Uh, I hold my hand up. I'm not perfect either. You know, like I definitely bought dresses I've worn once or maybe twice to events, you know, and I'm, I'm in a place where I'm not going to do that anymore for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm past that point in my life. Well, also back to what you said about vintage, like I got into vintage before it was trendy or before, like I cared about sustainability because I just wanted something that wasn't popular at the time. So like right now or six months ago, I decided I really wanted mini skirts and I looked first in stores and couldn't find any mini or online stores and couldn't find any mini skirts. So then I went to Vestiate Collective and found a ton. So I'm with you on that. It's, it's a, it's, it's an incentive right there in front of your face. It's not just about helping the planet. Um, the expression part of it is, is key. And I think that's really important. And like sustainable fashion can kind of get heavy because it is heavy and it's not to make it not heavy, but the fashion part of sustainable fashion, you know, people wear what they wear because they want to express something a lot of the time, you know, and I think it's, we should keep that in there, you know, and keep it so that it fashion can be a bit fun and, you know, a form to express yourself. That's why I got interested in costume design. Um, originally was, I, you know, I really was interested in the psychology of why people wear something. And I still think it is really fascinating. And I think it's a wonderful form of expression for those who want to use it that way. And I think that you can have it be both better for the planet and something that is really unique to you, especially through those secondhand channels. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we talked about what the consumer can do and now, um, maybe we'll plug for textile exchange. What can brands do that like, actually I'm really inspired to do more right now. And it, maybe I'm like at point zero of my journey of trying to be a sustainable brand. And where do I get started? If you are point zero of trying to be a sustainable brand, I always say the first thing to do, and I did, I said, I did say this before I joined Textile Exchange, but I stand by it, especially as Textile Exchange, is look at what materials you're using, look at which one you're using the most of, and figure out how you can use a more sustainable, you know, preferred version of that material. I think I've always thought, I mean, that's, that's why I was so drawn to Textile Exchange and why it's such a perfect fit for me is I think that materials are... Uh, probably the most powerful part of the sustainability journey for a brand. And it's the most tangible thing to the end customer as well. You know, it's what it's when you think about like everything that goes into a product, the material is the part that you touch and feel and that you connect with at the end of outside of the design. But I think that starting there is a really good place to start. So if you're using, you know, 50% of the materials you use as, as a brand are cotton, figure out how to source organic cotton. You know, if you're using a lot of viscose, figure out how you make sure that the viscose you're using is coming from a sustainably managed forest and not coming from a rainforest. You know, and there's, there's we've got lots of tools as textile exchange to help companies navigate that. Um, and there are lots of pieces of information out there now so that you don't starting from um, zero. And for us at Textile Exchange, we are really about meeting people at where they are in their journey. You know, we're, if you are ready to start, then we're ready to work with you. You know, there's, we, we talk about this a lot is, you know, that within the multi-stakeholder initiatives, and there's, there's a number of them in fashion and in sustainability, you know, we all kind of work in different ways, but we are really happy to work with anyone at any part of their journey. 
whether they're starting or they're more advanced. You know, you don't have to know everything to start working on materials and start working on solutions. It can be actually the first step, which is nice. I think that, you know, when you start diving into maybe um, really heavy innovation or, you know, really, you know, meaningful supplier interventions where you need a lot of buying power, you know, around chemicals or something like that, sometimes it's a little bit more advanced in your journey. Um, and we feel like we can really help people at the beginning of their journey. I mean, if that wasn't an inviting invitation to all of our brand listeners, then I don't know what to do for them. <laughs> Come on in. <laughs> Opening all the doors. We know exactly what to do. We're just going to keep inviting a lot more. Claire, thank you so very much for coming um, onto the pod. Uh, the insights that you gave and the recommendations that we have now, uh, well, the recommendations that we continue to have um, for our listeners um, to be more mindful. Um, and even Max, you know, hey, if you're in a, a group of women who are frequently wearing a lot of dresses, just stop the music and ask, hey, people, who wants to share dresses? Sponsored again by Rent the Runway. Uh, these are these are really, really powerful insights and things that we have to, to keep remembering. Um, so I, for one, am going to think about my next clothing purchases um, again uh, under the lens of um, what can be sustained, what can be prepared, uh, repaired. Um, and this is really going to cut into my flip-flop collection. Um, but uh, I really greatly appreciate um, uh, the work that you're doing on the front lines with these brands, um, because ultimately you and H&M are going to have to have a conversation and that's going to be awkward. Thank you for having me. And I want to talk to you more about agroforestry. So, uh, I feel like that's a conversation that needs to be had. She's kind of my dream guest, but at this point I had to put my money where my mouth was. Um, Claire, I will take you up on that and use you as bait um, uh, to get Max to show up to an extracurricular hangout with me outside the podcast. It's going to be great. I mean, I definitely miss digging my hands in some soil. So I am Henry Lynn from Better World. And I'm Max Moynian from Future Earth. Oh, oh, oh the drop. I forgot. She forgot. Um, uh, and this has been an ongoing partnership between Future Earth and Better World. Thank you for joining us. And come back and listen some more for awkward sentiments, joy, and holding brands accountable.